to The Mary Mack Show, where we will be talking about your feelings, experiences, and pain following the death of a loved one. Wherever you find yourself in this entire world, I welcome you. Today we continue speaking with Rebecca in part two of our conversation where she goes into depth about the death of two of her sons to fentanyl poisoning on the same evening. She then goes into her activism in this community as well as tell you about her work with women who have been raped, impregnated, and how she helps them move to full terms so that this baby can then be adopted. I'm so grateful for her being with us. So here we are. And I threw my arms around him and I said, I love you so much. And he says, I love you too, mom. And then I said it again. I said, I love you so much. He said, I love you too, Mom. And those were our last words. Oh, my goodness. And then apparently, you know, my ex-husband drove him to Southfield to get his brother. And then this girl was there. So he drove her. And I guess these two other people either met them or he drove them as well and checked them in and then left him the car and he Ubered home. He left him Caleb's car. And so the drug dealer used Caleb's car to um, go get the drugs. It's been hell. Um, Jesus said that hell is where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I literally cracked a tooth after their deaths. Um, It's, uh, you know, it's just so hard to know that they fell through the cracks in so many ways, all these things that shouldn't have happened. Um, it takes a lot to survive. I had a friend who said that it takes no effort to drown. You know, you do nothing and you can drown, right? Mm -hmm. But you have to fight to survive. And um, there's a lot of days where I feel like I'm dragging a dead body around. (laughs) You know, there's days like after they died where I would just like, you know, say to God, just take me. You know, there's, you hear about people dying in car crashes and I think, why can't, why can't that happen to me? You know, and I remember thinking, God, just take me. But then 
I had been interviewed shortly after they died on a Catholic radio program, and there was a um, national program. There was a woman who called in who lost her son to fentanyl poisoning, and she he was struggling with substance use, and she um, had taken him. He received communion, and she said that um, she felt like he died in a state of grace, and that God took her, took him while he was in a state of grace, you know. And I just had to, I couldn't let that stand because, you know, it was like when people said that about Cassie, that God took her, you know, my baby girl. And I said, you know, God's not a killer. You know, God didn't take them. He received them. Much better choice of words. Yeah. And so then when I would ask God, just take me. I like immediately would have to like correct myself. Like God's not a killer. God's not a killer. God's not going to take me. You know, the thief came to steal, kill and destroy. destroy, But I came that That you you may have have life and have it to the full. It's really hard to have life to the full when you've lost your children. Absolutely. Um, You know, I was like really deteriorating badly. Where, you know, just a couple months out, like I wasn't going to make it. Three months out, I wasn't going to make it. I was having horrible panic attacks and stress tremors where I was just in bed and just shaking violently. And um, a friend of mine said, you know, the treatment for that. And I, I had been in Christian therapy. I was in grief share. But um, a friend of mine said that, the, you know, the treatment for that, he's a doctor, is, is Xanax. <laughs> like that is not crossing this threshold no that's not entering this body um in fact when i broke my clavicle like nine months later i found out that they use fentanyl for um anesthesia and i'm like no i i don't want fentanyl and they're like well you have to and i'm like i want to talk to anesthesiologists and i explained it to him like that's not coming in the system because they're all like, oh, it's different. You're not like acting condescending to me. Like you don't understand. It's controlled. It's I'm like, I don't care. I'm not worried that I'm going to die. It's on principle. I do not want that substance in my body. Right. And so they were able to do something else. Um, and I didn't want opioids either, you know, after. Um, so... Yeah, I, um, he said to me, my doctor friend said, well, you're going to have to do something different or you're not going to make it you're, or you're not going to have a choice. You know, you'll be committed and you, you know, you won't have a choice and they'll force you on stuff. So I had to make a decision because I, I had a, I had friends who'd say things like, oh, the best years of your life are going to be ahead of you. And I'm like, how could you say that when you're kids, you know, I felt like, you know, the best years of my life are when they were young. I loved it. I loved homeschooling them. I have so many good memories. You know, they were they were great kids. I loved, I loved all our adventures. We traveled all over the place with the speaking I did. We had so many great adventures. I took all five of my kids to Ireland with me on the plane alone. <laughs> wow. um, and uh that's adventurous. We, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we would go to state capitals. I'd testify and we 
I took them to caves. We got to see like Jesse. I don't know. Whatever. We saw his hideout. We saw where we went to, you know, fields where there was like military history, you know, civil war history. My, my son was a huge, Kayla was a huge military history buff. We went to natural waterfalls and, um, We listened to Adventures in Odyssey and Adventures of Jonathan Park in the car and military songs and Bible <laughs> songs. Um, yeah, it was a great life, you know. I loved being their mom. Um, I would adopt them all over again. You know, there's a lot of things I would do differently. A lot I would do differently. Um, but adopting them is not something I would do you know I, I would still adopt them I just loved me and their mom um anyhow yeah so I made a decision that I would try to have the best life I could under the circumstances and so I started running and I hadn't done any exercise in months because the gyms had been closed I was in horrible shape I would run one minute at a time at a 10 minute pace. And, and when and did you make that decision? Do you remember? In November, like beginning of November. Okay. And I had a guy, I had started dating a guy. Um, it was a guy I actually had dated, gone on a, a date with in law school and broke up with him. And it's funny because the same concerns I had back then ended up being true now, you know, <laughs> It didn't um, change. I could quickly see that this guy couldn't handle grief. And he told me that he was like a believer. And I, I could tell like he had no faith. He he couldn't handle talking about life, death, heaven, hell, like grief. He couldn't handle it. And he'd never lost anybody special to him. Um, But like two months out, he broke up with me for this girl he was running with. He said that she was more fun to be with. Like, what did you think was going to happen when you first got together been, with me? Oh, so I had been doing, I had done fun stuff with him. Like we went dancing, like trying to, you know. Yeah. So that, that was like horrible, you know, just what a, what a, what a rat. But, you know, and I, and then at that point, I kind of felt like, who's, you know, for the next month, like, who's going to love me? Like my life is trash. Like, and, and I start, I got on like dating apps where as soon as people ask how many kids you'd ha I had, and I told them I lost my sons or there, there was a guy who hung up the phone. He was like, well, I'm sorry. He's like, good luck. Click. Oh my God. Yeah. Just people like, I don't want drama. Or, I don't want, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, they want a perfect life where nothing bad happens and everything good happens and life yeah. doesn't look like that. That's not the kind of person will be there for you when there's an issue. Yeah, so I um, I started running and I um, I did a mile running one minute at a time, you know, or I'd run two minutes. I'd run two minutes, I'd go lift weights, run, 
lift, one lift until I could get a mile in. And I had like 190 heart rate. It was terrible. I was in such bad shape cardio wise. <laughs> and then in eight days, I was able to run two miles straight. And in three weeks, I was able to do six miles. And then my knee started hurting. So then I started cycling. And then I joined a triathlon club and said, I'm going to do a triathlon club. I'd been a swimmer when I was younger um, and a runner. And so um, I had the goal of doing a triathlon, which I did. And I now I've done several. Um, but my knees have been hurting and my shoulder. I have bad shoulders. So I'm really, now I'm into gravel racing. I've been doing that, gravel bike racing. Um, but, you know, I... When you lose someone, you know, there's a lot of people there at first. Okay. And, and I saw this when I lost Cassie. And then they start to disappear. And then it's almost like, like grief is contagious or they don't want to think about losing a child. So they don't want to be around you. Yes. Yes. Um, so some of my closest friends like just disappeared and I started making new friends through my triathlon club which was really nice people who didn't know me as like oh the woman who lost her sons you know what I mean so the only time I'd hear from friends would be this like pity call hi Rebecca how are you you know I'm like you know I'm praying for you but nobody would really throw me a lifeline nobody would invite me to do normal things that we used to do mm -hmm. you know to go go do something fun No, and, um, I, I find I find exactly the same thing. It's a superficial kind of, do you know what I mean? It's kind of like on the outside. But it's like, I don't blame them. It's like people are uncomfortable. They don't know what to do. Yes, they you don't know? know what to say either. And, but it's all superficial. And, and these are the individuals who are in your life when it happened. And so they're the ones who said, oh, I'll be there for you. You know, just make sure you call me. If you need anything, let me know. And those are the ones that exit stage left. But like you said, what people need to know, whoever's listening to this needs to know that other people come into your life that you had no idea where they came from. You don't know what they their backgrounds. You don't know anything much about them, but somehow or another, they like become some of your best friends yeah your confidants the people who really care about you um getting this one up here she's <laughs> she's upset she wants some some love and so this is the other one natalie um so, you know, I've been doing, people were like, oh, this is going to be a new cause. I'm like, I don't want this to be my new cause. Like, I don't <laughs> want to remember my my boys for how they died. I want to remember them for how they lived. But I was immediately doing a lot of media interviews because, you know, I've been on a political debate show in the Detroit area for years, you know, where I'm like, a, you know, a guest whenever they're talking about like life issues and some other political issues. So they like called, reached out to me immediately, you know, and so there was a lot of press on this and it was a high profile story. And then there was, you know, an arrest and, 
you know, as I said, he ended up getting a plea deal, but it stayed in the news for a while. And it was, you know, kind of a sensational story because three young people died. There was another kid who died the same day in our hometown, 19-year-old, didn't make the news. Most yes. of the time, I mean, the, the the funeral home told me they have these all the time. My friend, my former law partner, her husband's a sheriff deputy detective in the next town over. And he's like, I got a stack of dead bodies on my desk. In other words, a stack of these cases. He's like, we don't have the manpower to check their phones and find the drug dealer and you know, crack their phones. Like we, He's like, these cases aren't even going to get investigated. Nothing's going to happen. You know? And it's like, you don't hear this stuff. You don't hear about how many are dying. Later, you see the stats, the numbers. Yes. I mean, the, year the year Caleb was born, 2000, there were 20,000 drug deaths in the U.S. The year they died, 2020, there were over 100,000. Five times as many. Look, I had no idea. The world changed so fast. So yeah. fast. And and then this year, this past year, they're saying they're estimating it might be 125. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's crazy. And you would think this is what I said when I testified before Congress last February, that one death would be enough to sound the alarm. I mean, if there was one death from anthrax. Right. I mean, you yes. when anthrax, like there's one envelope with anthrax in it and everybody's freaking out. But imagine there's like a hundred thousand deaths from anthrax. Like, you know, I mean, it's it's insane that just one death isn't enough to sound the alarm. And and I think that to a lot of people, it's like, well, they're just they're just drug addicts, like you know. And honestly, I feel like when I went and testified, you could see who's not doing anything. Like the Democrats aren't doing anything about this. Like this is a war. Oh yeah, you know that. Clearly, this is how China has waged modern warfare. They're Without doing it Without with them. Mm -hmm. They're killing off our young population who would be military age, right? It's the number one exactly. cause of death. Yeah. Um, 18 to 45. And, I mean, you look at all the kids that are dying now, like babies even. Um, it's just insane. And they don't care. And the cartels don't care. The Mexican president, he said, we don't have a fentanyl problem in our country. And it's, you know, American parents didn't hug their children enough. He said that right after I testified, because when I testified, this exploded, it created all kinds of conversation. My, my testimony went viral, it was all over the news. And then the president laughed the next day. Speaking to House Democrats, he said, because he said, did you you saw that mom who lost her two sons. Well, it turns out the fentanyl they got came during the last administration. <laughs> so that went viral. And then I demand an apology. That went viral. And I would, the news cycle went on that whole week on this topic. And so it got conversation going. And then the Mexican president says American parents don't hug their children enough. Which is telling me I didn't. The problem is I wasn't hugging my children. Like, oh, you so it was your fault. Oh, instead man. of their fault 
for allowing this to come parents, into the water. And then all these other parents, and I'm in support groups with 30,000, one group, there's over 30,000 in that group, Lost Voices of Fentanyl. Yes, um, me too. And so they said that um, all these other parents are contacting me, just hundreds I heard from, I'm telling you hundreds over the next month or so, who um, were furious because their kids did die during his administration and they'll never forget how he laughed. Um, and, and clearly these people who just don't care, you look at California, they won't even, they won't even say that a drug dealer has to have a warning after killing somebody that next time, if you kill someone, you know, it, it's going to be homicide. Like they won't even pass a warning, which is a slap on the wrist. They won't even pass that law. Um, and it, it's the Democrats, like I see, who just will not do anything about this. And it's the same people, honestly, who um, are the population control people. They're the people who think the world's overpopulated. Mm -hmm. And they're happy to sterilize children. Children who say they have gender just, you know, disorder, I think it is, whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. So go ahead. You know who the number one provider of um of hormonal therapy is for for children? Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood. The same people who are trying to rid the population of preborn children, you know. Um, I mean, if you look at you know, the things that they've said over the decades and, and Margaret Sanger and her, you know, they're all population control people. The American Eugenics Society is the one who came to her, you know, first. And they, they she started the Birth Control League and then they made it called, they changed it to Planned Parenthood. She had the Negro Project and they wanted to rid the world of poor people and criminals and blah, 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 blah. And these are the same people today, you know, they're, they're, who do you go after? You go after the most marginalized people groups, you know, you, I mean, the preborn, people with substance use disorder, people who are confused and are identifying with gender dysphoria, well, just sterilize them, you know, make it so they'll never be able to get pregnant, start them on drugs and their kids, you know? They don't care. They do not care that our children are dying. They just don't care. Um, and you cannot treat this the way you they're treating other drugs. Oh, we just need to give them clean needles. We need to just do this in a state. You can't do that with fentanyl. You know, fentanyl is done, you know, used safely in hospitals when you have, you know, an anesthesiologist and you know, they they make sure that you don't die and they've got you on oxygen. What are you, you're going to set up centers for hundreds of thousands of people where they're going to be able to go in and safely do like, you know, they, they say, well, we, we can test to make sure it doesn't have fentanyl. In it. You, not in pill form. That testing strips don't work in pill form. You know, oh, if you chop up the pills, you grind the pills, then the testing strips will work. Like, they're really? going to do them? Like, <laughs> yeah. that's not you the basically answer. have to destroy the product to be able to test it. 
we have to destroy the product by securing our southern border, mm -hmm. you know, and doing something about it coming through the mail and all the other sources. You know, we need to, this is a war. You need to treat this like a war. They're killing off our people, mm -hmm. you know? And so, all right, I, you know, I didn't want this to become my new cause. And I had all these other parents contacting me saying, I want to do what you're doing. How can I, I like, they want to have a platform. Like, again, their kid died. It wasn't in the news. Nobody cared, right? How do I get something done? How do I get the, the prosecutors to act? How do I get the police to do something? You know, you have to have a platform. You have to know how to make waves. And so I decided that I'm going to do something about this. So I approached Lost Voices of Fentanyl leaders and I approached my friend with the leadership institute so I do I've done training for years in-house for my organization for our speakers and others who want to become active and make a difference on the pro-life issue and um, so I do media training speaker training like activism training how to testify how to write legislation how to lobby how to get it enacted you know and so I, and I've done, I had my people go through leadership training for media in DC and I've conducted sessions for Leadership Institute doing training on messaging on the life issue. And so I've collaborate, collaborated with them for years. And I, and when I went and testified, my friend, picked me up at my hotel in an Uber and took me to the Capitol and stayed with me and then took me back to the hotel. She's like, you are not doing this alone. You're not flying into town and doing this alone. She's like, I'm like, you know, I could just take an Uber. You don't have to. And she's like, nonsense. Like, I'm going to be there for you. And oh, so she nice. cares about, so she cares about this issue. And they said that even though they normally, their training is for conservative activism, they said, this is to us, this is a life issue. So we will train people. We'll, we'll be happy to do the training. We don't care if you're a Republican, Democrat, liberal, whatever. We'll do this training because they have the platform to do these webinars. That's great. So, so far, we've done, we the, the fourth one was actually two nights ago. So, um, and drug-induced homicide. And which organization is doing this? So Leadership Institute has the platform. So they're doing the training and they're three hours each. And I got to be a presenter at the first two. And um, also um, April from Lost Voices of Fentanyl. And they helped promote it that this was a Lost Voices of Fentanyl event along with drug-induced homicide. That's great. And so they did some presentations. So the first one was like on media, how to get media attention, how to do a media interview, how to get journalists, how to, everything you need to know, how to dress for it, how to set up your, you know, yeah. everything. How to do it, if it's via Zoom, if it's in person, if it's, you know, whatever, just everything you need to know. And also then how to do, um, how to, organize a rally okay or a press conference and all that kind of stuff how to do a press release everything and then the second one was legislation 
how to draft legislation. Yeah. How to um kind of craft how it. To, how to approach legislators, how to get a sponsor, how to um lobby for it, how to rally support, how to get a coalition for support for it, how to um and how to testify. Okay. And then the third one was how to tell your story. And then the fourth training last like two nights ago was how to set up a 501c3 or 501c4 mm -hmm. and how to um how to set up a board, how to incorporate, how to um set up you know a nonprofit, yes, um bylaws, how to stay on top of filings every year that yep. are required. Yep. Taxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so then we're gonna do one two thing on fundraising. I don't know. So yeah, I didn't want to set up like my own new organization. I already have an organization. I hardly do anything. I'm so low functioning compared to before any of this happened. Um, it takes a lot to get through every day. You know, a lot of times I still stay in bed. I I achieve very little. I, I was like an overachiever. I was like years ago. I was I I did a lot. Now I, I I'm lucky if I get to the grocery store. You know, like um. So, but at least like I could do this. Right. I could at least train others to do activism. There's a ton of great organizations out there. So many people started foundations, but a lot of them have no idea like how to get that yes. media attention, how to lobby, how to make things right. happen. Mm -hmm. You know, and they've got great vision. They've got great ideas, legislation that they want, but they just they don't know how to do it. So right. I'm hoping, you know, we we really need an army of people to be out there doing media interviews. Like I did so much that first month after testifying, but I, it shouldn't just be one person. Yeah. Like people treat it like, well, that's anecdotal. Oh, that's a, she was a bad mom. She screwed. I mean, the things people said, it was horrific. You know, a lot of people angry that I, they, to them, I made the president look bad. Like they just hate me know, knowing nothing else about me, just that the fact that people were upset with the president because of me. And so they would just say, oh, you know, you don't want your kids to die. How about not raising them to do drugs? Like, oh, are you crazy? Are you crazy? Like, people, there were people who said I should be the next one to die. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. There's... Politics people get insane. Yes, they do. So, yeah, but so I did that, and then I didn't. I didn't even actually attend the last two. I wasn't presenting, and I feel like I have to pace myself in my grief. Um, yes. One of the things I did was when I started running is I quit grief share and I stopped going to therapy for a while because I felt like it was keeping my grief right in front of my face constantly be talking about it so like I have to pace like I couldn't do that interview when we originally scheduled it because I was just overwhelmed I had I was in too much pain and I I I was so burnt out at the end of that month talking about losing my sons like I had to 
regroup, you know, mm-hmm. and just, I want Take other a step people. back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now I still, you know, this issue comes up, I still get called and I, I'm research and find out what's the latest that's going on. I've gone to the DEA summits, the DEA regional summits. I went to my first one, a DEA agent called me, the guy who's like the, I don't know, Detroit greater region. Mm-hmm. He called me after I testified and he said, like, I was a change maker, a change agent, you know, like he was like, you're, you got everybody talking about this now. He's like, that was so great. Um, and he invited me to go to the DEA summit Kalamazoo. So I went to that and um, they give you like briefings on what's going on. Mm-hmm. And We've made a difference in how the DEA approaches this and how they talk about this. Oh, like, yes. They don't say, I've heard that. And it's amazing. So they don't say overdose anymore. No. They say poisoning. But, you know, they're dealing with poisoning and overdoses because there still are some people that, like my boy's uncle who was doing fentanyl on purpose. Okay. That was an overdose, right? And then there's people who who are still overdosing from other drugs of choice. You know, so... So now they'll say, you know, fat, they'll say um, poisonings and overdoses. Okay, so that's good. You know, at least they're acknowledging that they're not all overdoses. Right. I mean, when I, I read about the little boy up in um, in the Bronx who was in daycare yeah. and, and an idiotic reporter says overdose. And I'm thinking, how does like a two-year-old a three-year-old, however old he was, how how did he OD on anything? Yeah, yeah, it's insane, right? So poisonings, those are homicides. Yes, they are. Um, Yeah, so it's like, you know, I have somewhat of a sense of purpose in, in, you know, doing some of this stuff. But um, I'm going to be speaking at my boy's school at the end of this month and all the other schools in the district with fathers against fentanyl or father fentanyl fathers fentanyl fathers i think that's what they call it yeah um that'll be emotional one of my daughters still goes there so um but you know we're we're going to try to save some lives and i've you know, glad to be trying to make a difference, um, some way honoring them in that respect. I have difficulty. Very admirable. I don't really go to their, um, I haven't been to their grave site in a long time. I have difficulty going there. I I don't want to think about their remains. I want to think about, I'd rather think about them in heaven. I've had some really profound dreams with them. A lot of people have, a lot of their friends had, and people who didn't even know them did, and a lot of similarities, but um, but they were all very profound. I felt like they were little special visits that got allowed. Haven't had any in a while, but I'm always so happy when I have a dream with them in it. You know, and they're very vivid, and they have messages, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people who crave that and haven't had that. And so it's really great that you do. How are your daughters doing? The ones who are, who have along with you lived through all of this? I mean, they seem to be doing fine. Um, 
I think that our relationship, though, because they didn't like seeing me grieve, they didn't get to have a normal mom the last few years. How old are they now? Sometimes they would make fun of me. My girls would mock me, mm -hmm. you know? Um, I mean, and I had one daughter, my oldest said, you know, mom, why don't you just cry in your room alone like I do? Wow. Oh, yeah. Um, but then later she said to me, you know, mom, I hope you don't mind. But when I'm alone, all I could do is think. this is like shortly after they died. And she's like, all I could do is think about them. And, and, you know, and I cry and she's like, when I'm with someone, when I'm with you, I have a chance to be with someone and, and to talk about, think about something else. You know, so I hope you don't mind when I'm with you, if we could. They're, they're happy to talk about good memories and their lives, but they don't want to talk about their deaths and losing I, them. Mm -hmm. How old were they when um, your sons were poisoned? So Contessa was, um, let me double check. So she was 12, almost 13. And Karina was um 16 almost 17 and Coralie was um 14 so they were 12 14 and 16 and Karina's birthday was a week later oh my We had her have friends over still. I didn't want her to like not have friends, you know, so. Or not have the event acknowledged. Yeah, and it was good just to have her friends around, I think. Although she'll say now, you made me have a birthday party. But she was <laughs> happy. It wasn't a party. I said, let's just call it a gathering, you know? Yeah, a gathering. Yeah. And now she tells me she doesn't like celebrating her birthday. That's tough. At some point, I had a hard time like speaking after because it's like, you know, I had some in-person events that fall and I had some Zoom events for, for fundraisers for pro-life speaking. And I told my kid, my, my, the story of my three children who died, I told uplifting pro-life stories from them lessons from them as children, profound things that they said that are related to this issue. Kyla wrote out his story when he was 12. Um, and I, I read that and I, um, I couldn't get up and tell my story because I felt like I couldn't sit there and talk about how my life matters when I lost my children. Right. And so it was like a year before I started sort of telling my story again so that first season I just did speeches where I told uplifting and then at the end I told what happened to them like briefly told what happened to them um but said you know I would adopt them all over again you know it was not her to be their mother but you've made such a difference in so many people's lives and not only in advocacy for fentanyl causes, but 
also for all the women who, you know, were pregnant because of rape. Would you like to spend just a moment or so talking about all that wonderful work you do? So, you know, some of it was just to like, So Save the One is my organization, savetheone.com. And that's the numeral one, not the word. Um, and it, currently it's from the parable of the lost sheep where Jesus said, see that you do not despise any of these little ones. I mean, we're despised, you know. <laughs> and he says, for I tell you, their angels in heaven always look upon the face of my father in heaven. And he goes into the parable of the lost sheep, how the good shepherd leaves in the 99 to save the one. And he says, for in the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. And so neither should we. You know, that's the heart of God. The little ones who are despised, he's not willing that any of them should die, should be killed. Um. So our goal is to make the world, you know, a more loving, a more accepting place for our people group. Um, we have support groups, regional groups, state groups, groups by country. We have Save the One Australia, wow. Save the One Africa, we have Save the One Uganda, Save the One European Union, Save the One Michigan, Florida, you know, Pacific Northwest, Save the One New England. So um, we have these regional groups and then we also have private groups for, um, so that, you know, they're Facebook groups. So, so people can stay in touch, people can meet because I can't have a personal relationship with 1200 people. Right. I, I don't want to be the only contact person. I want them to become friends with other people and get together and do stuff and do rallies together or speak at schools together or testify on legislation together um, or just meet and go for coffee or tea, you know, um, and then um, maybe do their local march for life together. And then we have support groups, like we have Save the One moms for moms who are raising their children who became pregnant by rape. We have Save the One women conceived in rape. And then we have a separate group for the men conceived in rape. We have about 40 men in that group. We have, wow. you know, hundreds in our women's group. We have um, a group for women who regret aborting after being raped. Some of them were forced abortions, others chose abortion, but they regret aborting. So we have a group for them. We have a group for all the birth mothers who became pregnant by rape. And then we have a group, carried a birth group for people who were told by doctors to abort, which is hundreds of people. So we try to have connection. Some people, you know, feel really whole, others, you know, they're, and they're there to support the others who aren't as strong. Um, there were a few people who were suicidal, who were conceived in rape. And um, in each instance, like when they were saying horrible things about themselves, you know, when they learned how they, were, they just felt like all the, all the things that the world says, you know, monstrous child, demon seed, horrible reminder, tainting the gene pool. There's people who've told me if you cared about your birth mother at all, you would have killed yourself a long time ago. Oh my God. Um, so there's, you know, people saying, you know, who feel like worthless because the world makes us to feel worthless, that we're disposable, that we should have been killed. Um, and so 
in each instant, I, I asked them, is that how you see me? All these horrible things you're saying about yourself. Is that how you see me? And each one in this, you know, individual conversation I had with them, they're like, oh gosh, no, no, like, <laughs> I would never say that to you. Like you're my hero. And I'm like, I told them, well, you realize when you say all those things about yourself because you're conceived and raped, like you're now saying those to me. Like you, you could just say that to me because I was conceived and raped too. And then they're like, oh, I would never, I would never say that to you. And in each instant, they came back to me later and said that conversation was pivotal for them. And that by seeing my worth and by seeing the worth of all these other beautiful people who are in our support groups, they were able to see their own worth. And so that's what like my goal is to have them all be Facebook friends and see that everybody's multidimensional. They have families, they have interests, they have hobbies, you know, they, you know, and they're normal people. And even just doing that, even if you never meet in person, it helps. But, you know, we have a chance to meet in person every year and at the March for Life. And a lot of people say that, and we usually get an Airbnb. We didn't this year, but a lot of us are rooming together in different ways. But um, they 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 said it's the first time they ever met somebody else in person who was conceived in rape or who became pregnant by rape. Mm -hmm. And they just said, this is like a spiritual retreat. This is not just like going to March for life. And we have a, a booth at the um, expo. So people come up and we all share our story with people coming up to our booth. And and they're all like, this was like the greatest high. This was unbelievable. This was like so cathartic. You know, and so I'm glad that I can sort of provide those kind of opportunities as well as opportunities for activism. Yes. And, then, um, you know, we start years ago, decades ago, started seeing that some of these moms were having to fight the rapist over pussy and parental rights. And the answer is not like, we'll get them an abortion, you know, no, protect them. And I'm a family law attorney. So I was able to, um, you know, help with drafting and getting the Rape Survivor Child Custody Act and that, you know, passed. And, um, and that gives the state to, and incentives to states like Michigan, where you get more money for rape victim advocacy. And if you pass this law using clear and convincing evidence standard, which is the normal standard for termination of parental rights cases, because it's a civil case, not a criminal case. So you shouldn't have to have a conviction to terminate parental rights. Um, and half the states have passed our law. The other half have now passed a law, but they're requiring a rape conviction. So when I started, there were only 17 states that had any law. One of them used clear and convincing evidence standard. Louisiana, the rest required a rape conviction. So we've come a long ways. And um, I represent women pro bono in Michigan. Wow. I've handled numerous cases now, terminating parental rights. Rebecca, you're an amazing woman. I give you so much credit and I honor you for all that you've done for other people, even in the midst of all of your own pain. Yeah. And I'm so great. I'm working on, on North Carolina right now to get our law passed there. I'm working with a legislator. I have a Zoom meeting coming up. We already did one. and But it's like, I owe them like 
some language I had already done language on it but I have to like update it and send it to them and it's like I'm just not like I procrastinate I'm just not on top of things like I used to be um oh I used to time for you to take it's time for you to take some time for you I mean when I was very active with parents murder children and we were doing similar work you know, we were going to Albany, writing laws, changing laws, having conferences, all this that you mentioned. It was such a toll. I mean, it took a lot of time. You know, just to drive up to Albany is seven, eight hours, you know, and so much to do to make people aware, you know, going to all the different. Um, Where do you live? Oh, I'm not in New York anymore. But okay. that's where I was originally from. And that's where I did all this advocacy after my stepdaughter was murdered. And so as time went on, we did so much like knocking on doors up there, you know, trying to have them come on to the bill that we were proposing. You know, it's a lot of work. No. I can totally appreciate what you're saying. Yeah. Um. There was a, um, gosh, years ago, early in my speaking, I mean, two decades ago, I was speaking at a, a pro-life event, I think a pregnancy center fundraiser. And a guy came up to me while they're doing like the appeal. And he, he whispers to me and he's like shaking visibly. And he starts to tell me this story that years ago, his daughter was raped, a teen daughter was raped and she was murdered and she was wrapped up in a carpet and left at the side of a highway. Oh my God. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. Oh my gosh. And he's like, just let me finish. And he's, and he's shaking and he's like, I swore, you know, if if she had been you know survived and she'd become pregnant you know like I've always said you know cases of rape you gotta have an abortion you know in cases of rape you shouldn't have to have the monster's child and 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 I was about to say something he's like let me finish and he and he starts crying and he's like I swore nobody could ever change my mind he's like but after hearing you speak he's like I would have loved to have had my grandchild, you know, if there had been one, like, he's like, I could see, you know, you know, a, a beautiful child could make a difference, you know, and then he, and he's like, I have to leave. And then he took off. And then afterwards, people are coming up to me in that organ. They're like, what did he say to you? Are you Okay. What did he say to you? Because they they all knew his story because he was a local guy. Okay. You know? And they're like, did he, was you, you know, because they knew like his position, you know, because he'd been vocal on that, I guess. And then I told them what he actually said. And they're like, oh, no way. They're like, really? You know? I don't know what what happened to your stepdaughter. She was murdered at the age of 11. She was going to, um, through the woods to get to a store. And one of her older brother's um, friends 
I mean, families knew each other for years growing up. And he tried to rape her. And she wouldn't have anything of it. And then, of course, he had to kill her because she would tell. And so he wound up beating her unconscious, walking several feet to get a 35-pound log, flipped her over in a stream, and she really died of uh, drowning. Oh. And the worst part about it is he went with all his friends and my my his her older step her older brother to a um a place where they were dancing back then it was I forget the name of it but they were dancing together and he just pranced in there like nothing happened he went home took a shower went to this event acted like it was nothing took us 18 years to solve that crime to find out what happened how'd you guys find out was there DNA evidence? Uh, mitochondrial. And they saved everything. But back in that time, several decades ago, you couldn't use any, any of it. Technology wasn't there yet. Yeah. But really what happened was the um, original detective, he retired. And the two new detectives who came on were fresh eyes. They solved it within a matter of months. So did they use like ancestry? to find his identity oh no they they he was one of three top candidates okay so okay. the sec so the second group of detectives just went back went over everything all over again found out what he had been doing for those 18 years and came to find out that all the women that he was involved with along the way um, he told every one of them, if you don't do what I say to do, he was a controller and, you know, yeah. um, and narcissist and God knows what else. Um, if you don't do what I say, then I'm going to kill you the way I killed her. Awesome. So we had all these different women around the country eventually come and testify against him into Long Island. It was amazing to see that it took a whole month to um, go through the trial. Wow. Yeah. And because he was 15 at the time. And he didn't plead guilty. He went to trial. Oh no. He, he said he wasn't guilty to the bitter end, but it was all these women who agreed to testify against him now that he was behind bars and they were safe. Um, and those detectives had to orchestrate all these women coming into town from California, Las Vegas, Texas, North Carolina, wow. locally. Yeah, it was a big major thing. And and like you said, uh, when Angela was killed, it was on the front cover. Her whole face was on the front cover of the New York Post. And yeah. It was what year was that? 84. Long time ago. Yeah, I I lived out in New Jersey, you know, sort of outside New York City, um, for three years, but that was like late eighties. Yeah, so they um, didn't. They didn't. Um, we didn't go to. Well, they solved it. They they had to go to California and pick him up because he had been. 
arrested for the molestation of his own 14-year-old daughter. It was crazy. Yeah. And that's how he there... was in jail. So they went, they got him. They had to extradite him to New York. And um, so that took a little while. And then when he finally came back, it was, he was in jail for um, almost two years. And just to go to trial, it took almost two years. It was crazy. So how did they identify all these other women? Um, From around the country, they heard the they story? All, no, they had all put orders of protection out against him. Oh, so they were able to look at the law enforcement information network system and see yeah. all the women that had. Yeah, because they were wow. all deadly afraid that he would kill them. He was that violent. Yeah, those are just the women who got those. Those most women don't. Yep. They don't. So, yeah, they say, um, I, I went to training on this, and they say that for every child molester where they're caught, there's 100 who they molested and didn't get caught for. That's horrible. And that's based upon interviews in prison of convicted child molesters that they, the average was that they conf later confessed in prison to a hundred. I mean, we really don't have any idea whether he killed other young people, you know, yeah. other young women, or we really don't know all that end of things. I do know that when they finally um, got him, he was up on charges of selling steroids over the internet um, and then he'd mail it to them. And I did some investigating online and I, I found a lot of stuff with his name on it, spoke to a lot of people who knew who he was. And it seems that some guy in Massachusetts got their pills from, um, from him and OD'd. So now we had the postal police who wanted to get him that's crazy. I mean, he's serving life in prison now, right? No. What? Uh huh. Because he got a slap on the wrist for the molestation. He got a slap on the wrist for what? Massachusetts. Because it's kept all liberal states. Of course. And in New York, he um, was tried as an adult, but sentenced as a juvenile because that's the way the laws are in New York. So he only received nine to life. He served 18 and he's out. He's out now? Mm-hmm. And God knows what he's doing with himself. Does he have to report? I don't know. I like mean, he came up, he came up for parole every year, every two years. We fought it, we fought it. Had petitions, I mean, did he, went is he part of the, the regist registry, like for child molesters? I would expect so, but I- Do they have that in New York? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I know they're trying to get rid of it in a bunch of states. It might be. I'm, I'm not up on that right, you know, right now. But he's not been a good boy. He's lived his life harming other people. It's really sad. You no. Know, we always say, like, in my organization, child molesters, um, sex traffickers, rapists love abortion. We use the hashtag rapists love abortion because 
yeah, they, they'll do anything to not get caught. And if they're molesting a child and the child and they become pregnant, that's proof. They will get, that's a slam dunk conviction. It's not, he said, she said anymore. Right. It's, you just, you take a paternity test and you know. And so they, they're usually responsible for multiple abortions just on one victim. You know, by the time a girl, there's all these news stories that uh, under hashtag rapist love abortion, I, I get, I would get Google alerts. I still do. And I just delete them all. But I used to post every single time on these Google alerts when somebody would be arrested. Um, there were usually multiple abortions by the time they're finally arrested. And these girls start to hide their pregnancy. So he doesn't know because they see their child as, as their way out, that their child is the proof, but also someone to keep them company, a little angel to keep them company in their time of grief. And, and that this, that their child is a victim with them. And they actually abort at half the rate of your average unplanned pregnancy. Um, and the abortion is just protects and enables the child molester to continue perpetrating. And it's crazy that these all these abortion clinics just don't care. And there's been, you know, exposés of of how they're doing this to to young girls, and they don't report it. They're under a duty to report in most states, and they don't report it. And I I have a friend who has a ministry of a big organization of people who left the abortion industry, and these people say they were nurses, some of them doctors, but they did not want the police coming to the abortion clinic, too much drama. And um, in one instance, this, this nurse, she was just crying, saying how the doctor told her to hold the girl down because the girl was trying to get out of the stirrups, you know? And um, and they were trying to put in the laminaries for this late-term abortion. And uh, the girl ran out. She forced herself out supernaturally, like forced. She was young; she was like eleven years old. And oh my gosh! And um, yeah, she said that she'll never forget that little girl. And they had to; she had to coax her into getting back in there so they could at least take the stirrups out and take the laminaries out. Oh my but gosh. um, and she said she wasn't allowed to follow up to find out what happened to that girl. But it's um. Yeah, one way or the other, they want to destroy the evidence, destroy the proof, and you know. Rebecca, I admire all that you've accomplished in your life, even beyond all your pain. Well, I admire you for what you're doing, trying to, you know, take your grief and use it to help others because, you know. I, I was just thinking about it. You have this whole podcast on grief. Like, I don't know how you do it. That's a lot. And and even like people listening to it regularly, like I could not handle listening to like, it's hard to be in those support groups to see new faces added every day, every day, new faces added. And um, and hearing these stories, sometimes I do, I sit and I, and I'll comment and, you know, say things to them, but a lot of times, like, I can't, I have to get out, like, I got to get out of here. That's you know, fine. You know, I mean, you do. And, and that's what I'd like people to understand is you need to just do what is comfortable for you. You cannot, um, just because somebody's expecting you to go to a support group doesn't mean that that's right for you. 
You might go for a few times and you might get to share your story, which is very cathartic. But after a while, you sit there and you say to yourself, uh, I don't know if I can listen to everybody's sad story. And if that's the case, that's just fine. I, like I said, I have to, I have to pace myself. Like in the, in the Bible, it says, do not give full vent to your anger. I feel like I can't give full vent to my grief. Like I have to pace myself because if I go fully there, like I'll be dark for days. Like it's yes. going to be hard after this for a while, you know, um, you know, sometimes I have to do things to escape to for, prevent, you know, what kept me alive is watching dry bar comedy. Dry bar is clean comedy. They don't yes. allow like, any drug references that all allow swearing at all. Yes. I've watched it. Um, I really enjoy it. So that kept me alive in the days when I couldn't sleep. I couldn't, I, I would just watch it. I, I didn't laugh, but it numbed me and I was able to just, I didn't die. Mm-hmm. No, I didn't die. So it kept me alive. And um, every now and then I'll, I'll just watch comedy to escape. Or I, I did stand up comedy at, I had done stand-up when I was young a little bit. And I, and I, so I did a year and a half ago, I did a open mic night. And then I did it when I was in California a few weeks ago, I did four times. And then I did it last week, open, open mic night here. I had a bunch of friends come out and it's, it's like, you know, it's therapy. Um, yeah. It feels like a little victory to be able to get up and make people laugh instead of just making them cry. You know? sure. Oh, absolutely. Well, my my big thing is um, we have to get to a place where every little thing that happens to us in the day that is good needs to be acknowledged. So you're grat- you're grateful. You know, I'm grateful that I see the ocean right now. I'm grateful that I can speak to you, you know, that my body works, that I have I am able to laugh. And even if I catch myself, so what, you know, and I'm grateful that we have this podcast where people can tell their stories and other people can gain wisdom from them, right? So I always ask people to try to move into a gratitude, you know, a mode of gratitude because it's far better for our mental health and, you know, spiritual health. Um, psychological health than to always look at what's behind instead of looking at right this moment what am I grateful for and um, in my earlier episodes where I'm not interviewing I and I'm teaching at the very end that's what I say write five things in your journal tonight that you're grateful for because I want people to try to move into that mode a little bit each day you know, and not feel guilty about it. That's the big thing. That's good. good. I thank you again. It's good to have have lessons and to have something positive to give people a direction. I mean, you know, I kind of like shared the whole totality of, of the horror, you know, what I went through. But, you know, for a long time, I really tried to just tell people about the, the positive things that helped me. Important, you know, and helps you too. Yeah, because 
so I was telling you that story about the other people in my through my organization who were conceived in rape, who were feeling suicidal, and how you know much I wanted to help them to see their their worth, to see how valuable they they are, and that their lives matter. And um, you know, and I think about that when I see other parents in the support groups who are really in despair, who are feeling perhaps suicidal, you know, that like they feel like life's just not getting better. And they want like, I want to say stuff to encourage them. And I do say stuff to encourage them because I want them to live. I don't want them to to take their life, you know, because of this. And and then afterwards I realize, okay, this is like this is like the reverse lesson, like for me, of what I was doing for other people who were, you know, who were conceived in rape, who were feeling suicidal, and I help them see their value. Like these other people are helping me see my value because I don't want other parents who have lost their kids to die. I don't want them to die. So then why would I want to die? You know what I mean? If I don't want them to die, I can see what a tragedy would be if they took their lives. Like, why would I want to do that? You know? Yeah. And if I want them to have the best life they can, like I tell my, my son's friends, because I have them over periodically. I tell them, you know, I want you to live a life enough for two. Just live a great life. You know, enough enough for two people. Live live a large life. You know, make it good. Um, yeah, I want that for them. Then it's like, well, you know, why would I want that for myself, right? So true. Excellent advice and wisdom. I wish you well. Thank and I, I know that we will definitely be speaking to each other again in the future. Oh, this was a very scattered interview. So it's okay. <laughs> Apologize for that. <laughs> no, no, it's all fine. It's all fine. And for anybody listening, sorry, I was super scattered. <laughs> it's my, and my dogs. Fine. My dogs, you know, this is having them up here. I knew I, I wasn't going to be able to leave them downstairs for too long because we kind of just got up. I don't want to just leave them. And Yeah. They're, well, they're, they're still kind of Well, if you're watching the video version, the little ones have been on her lap and she's been hugging and loving on them. And it's just the nicest thing. Nicest thing. Yeah, thanks. Hi. <laughs> They're they're half um and then this is the, this one. Aww. of course they're, with the they're, Michigan they're, little bib on, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so half um they're still celebrating the victory, you know, the national victory. Uh -huh. Um, they're half Shih Tzu, half poodle. That's great. My little Daisy was all Shih Tzu, and I really enjoyed her. Oh. So. Yeah. Well, thank you, Rebecca, again for everything. And I will close this out and tell my 
uh, online family, please remember to subscribe, rate, review, comment, like, anything you want to let us know that this has helped you. And um, we appreciate your being here. Rebecca and I are very grateful for you. So have a good one, Rebecca, and I'll talk to you again soon. God bless. All right, God bless. Bye.